Alright, we're going to be in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 3. I'd like to open up there. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Secular historical records date this between 27 and 29 A.D. We know all about Tiberius Caesar historically. Uh, We know about Herod's boys, the three sons of Herod the Great, Herod Antipater and Philip and Lysanias. These were the three tetrarchs. A tetrarch is a ruler of a third. And when Herod died... His kingdom was kind of doled out to his three sons into three different areas they would rule over. But for all we know about Tiberius Caesar and the Tetrarch boys, for almost two millennia we knew absolutely nothing about Pontius Pilate except what the Bible told us. No external evidence, no proof that he existed until June of 1961. At that time, a dedication stone that was hewn and and written for Tiberius Caesar was unearthed at the find, at the dig, the archaeological dig, at Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the Sea. And on this was the inscription, Pontius Pilatus, Prefect of Judea, underscoring and supporting the biblical truth of a Pontius Pilate. Well, we knew it would. But archaeology just needed 1,961 or so years to catch up. But what's amazing in all of this is the Word of God, Luke tells us, came to John. It didn't even come to the high priest emeritus, Annas, who had been deposed by Rome. It didn't come to his son-in-law, the Roman replacement Caiaphas. It came to John. By the way, in December of 1990... Archaeologist V. Greenhut discovered an ornately decorated limestone ossuary. An ossuary is a bone box. And you know in, in Israel, the way burials had traditionally been done, especially back in the first century, was someone was laid in a tomb, and after they had decomposed and nothing was left but their bones, the bones were then collected and put in an ossuary, a smaller bone box. Oftentimes these ossuaries would contain bones of numerous family members, which is a great idea for storage. (laughs) They discovered this ossuary in Jerusalem's Peace Forest, and inside were the bones of two babies, a child, a teenager, an adult female, and a man who died at approximately 60 years of age. On the side of this ossuary, again, ornate limestone carvings, it read, Joseph son of Caiaphas. Now in his book Antiquities, Josephus refers to the high priest Caiaphas in office from 18 to 36 AD as Joseph Caiaphas. So Joseph, his first name. The bones of the 60-year-old are believed with a high probability to be the bones of Caiaphas, the high priest. January of 2011, another ossuary was discovered. Actually, it was recovered from tomb raiders. On the side of this ossuary was written, Miriam, daughter of Yeshua, son of Caiaphas, priest of Meatziah from Bet Imri. Now, don't let the Yeshua throw you off because Yeshua was a very common name. 
but this ossuary bearing the bones of Miriam, daughter of Yeshua, son of Caiaphas, she's the granddaughter of Caiaphas. So we have her bones as well. And biblical uh, study supports this. First Chronicles chapter 24 gives the listing of the priestly orders of the service of the temple, and the last order is the order of Meatzia, which is the name given, priest of Meatzia from Bet Emery on the side of that ossuary. Archaeologists also told, tell us that the order of Meatzia was the last order to ever serve in the Jerusalem temple. And that name, Meatzia, is also found in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 8. A biblical name. And traced all the way down to Caiaphas. So we have the bones of Caiaphas, and we have the bones of Caiaphas' granddaughter, Miriam. Luke gathers together here at the beginning of chapter 3 all of these important people, politically cruel people, religiously corrupt power players, not only to give us the chronology that he's talking about, but also to give us a very definite contrast that the Word of God came to John. The word came to John, and not in a palace, and not in the halls of government. The word came to John in the wilderness. And that's often how God will work. He comes to the obscure. He comes to the wanderer in the wilderness. He speaks to those who seem unimportant in the world until his voice begins to be heard. Luke told us John was a desert dweller. We know that as a prophet. Did you realize he was a desert dweller from his youth upward? John just loved the wilderness. Luke chapter 1 verse 80 describes his boyhood. He, He grew up in the desert. And now having heard the word of God in the wilderness, John's ministry begins. Do you want to outline this if you're taking notes? We'll start with number one tonight, the forerunner. The forerunner. Verse three. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. A baptism of repentance. Baptism, you Bible students know, was not a new thing for the Jewish people. Baptism was simply a a mikvah bath. The mikvah was that Jewish ritual cleansing bath that they would go through for several different reasons. The Hebrew word mikvah means a collection. And in this case, it means a collection of water used for purification. They would use it before entering the temple courts, going into that full immersion mikvah. We've talked about this, right? They would go down into the mikvah, get completely dunked, immersed, and come back out of the mikvah. That is the pattern for biblical baptism, full immersion. That's how they did it. If you had contact with the dead, say you had to bury a relative or had some kind of uh, contact, physical contact with the dead, you had to go into a Jewish mikvah bath. You had to become purified. For a woman following childbirth, she would have to go through the mikvah bath, a leper that was healed. Although no lepers had been healed for thousands of years, you know, until Jesus came along and started healing lepers, and all of a sudden the law comes into place. But when a leper was healed, he had to go into the mikvah bath as well, a baptism. So for the Jews, baptism was about purification. For the Gentiles, it was proselytization. Right? It's how you became a Jew. If you wanted to join in Jewish faith, obviously you couldn't become a Jew genealogically, but you could faith-wise. And so you had to go through the mikvah bath. But John's baptism, it was neither purification nor proselytization. It was preparation to get the people ready. Prepare the way for the Lord. 
So understand this about John's baptism. It was limited in both time and effect. It would only be in existence for a short time. And the effect of this baptism would also be very limited. It simply anticipated Messiah's imminent arrival. Baptism as we know it today is different. It's not about purification. It is not about proselytization. You know, some churches do it that way. Churches that say, if you join this church, you have to be baptized into this church. Well, that's just making a proselyte. And it's not for preparation. Baptism today is a picture of propitiation. A picture of that complete and total washing. It conveys a miraculous rebirth. Something that you cannot do. Something that I cannot do. A complete cleansing. An eternal purification. When you are baptized, when you come out of the waters of baptism, what that signifies is that you have been washed. That you have been cleansed. And that you are pure now for all eternity. Not because of the water. Those of you who have been baptized in the pond know that's got to be true. It's not the water. It's the faith in God's grace that purifies and cleanses us. But we're baptized to signify that important truth. John's baptism identified a person with their sin. That's why it was a baptism of repentance. But baptism into Jesus doesn't identify us with our sin. It identifies us with our Savior. Which is a baptism of redemption. The Bible tells us baptism exemplifies the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's a picture of that. Going down into the water as Jesus was buried. Raised up as Jesus resurrected to walk in a newness of life. And Paul describes that in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 and and following. Paul also tells us in Galatians 3.27 that baptism clothes us with Christ. I love that description. You put on Christ in baptism. We're told in Acts 2.38 that baptism endows us with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is not something that happened in John's baptism. In fact, none of those things happened in John's baptism. It just got them ready. It made them aware of their sin. In fact, one commentator made the comment that for Jews to be baptized, it was either for their purification rite, or it was a picture of a Gentile becoming a Jew, which meant to be baptized, made the Jew recognize that they were as filthy as a Gentile. And so it was about purification, connection with sin. And yet we're baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. This is out of uh, Acts chapter 19. Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard that there, whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people who believed in him who was coming after him. That is Jesus. I love their response. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They didn't debate it. They didn't go look at their traditional stance. They didn't consider their denominational uh, focus. They just got, got it done. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. And I love that. They hear, they recognize what the truth of baptism really is, and they do it right then. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't anyone want to be baptized in the manner that Christ describes it? 
for all the debates that we have in the church today about infant baptism versus believer's baptism. About sprinkling versus immersion. About tradition versus decision. Why wouldn't anyone, and I ask you this tonight, why wouldn't you, if you haven't already, choose to be baptized? In the meaning of the word, baptizo in the Greek, immersion, submersion. Why not? Well, it's not my tradition. I don't care, and neither does the Word of God. Because we're not about tradition, are we? We're about the Word. Why wouldn't you want to, of your own choice, your own decision, your own volition, to be immersed and clothed with Christ? I've been baptized several times. It's not because I didn't think it didn't take the first time. Because again, baptism, the act, is the portrayal, is the symbol of the faith. But every time we go to Israel, I go into the Jordan. And I baptize other people and then I try to get out and they always take me down. (laughs) Because of the beauty of the symbol, the picture, what it reminds me of. What it's about. Our baptism, very, very different than John's. His baptism was preparation. Get the people ready. Focus them on their sin. Make them realize they need a Redeemer. They need redemption. They need forgiveness. And so the people were coming out to John in droves. And John came, Luke continues in verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And I'll just point out again, as we did in Isaiah, that Luke supports Isaiah the prophet as the writer of the entire book of Isaiah. Because what he quotes here is from Isaiah 40, the latter half of the book. And there are higher critics today who say Isaiah 40 and after is written by Deutero Isaiah. How'd you like a name like Deutero? (laughs) Second Isaiah, a later Isaiah and not the original Isaiah. Luke didn't think so. Luke considered Isaiah the prophet as the author of the entire book of Isaiah. And so he quotes him, "...the voice of one crying in the wilderness." Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. The rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Now we studied that back when we were going through Isaiah. I saw it completely differently this time. Reading Luke, quoting it, John the Baptist being portrayed here and recognizing something wonderful here. What the prophet describes in all the the hills being uh, ravines filled, paths straight, mountains and hills brought low, crooked will become straight, rough roads smooth. What he's talking about is making the pathway to salvation totally clear. Flat, level, unobstructed, easy to get to. Whereas once it may have been difficult to know how to get saved, how to find your way to God, how to work your way through the ravines and hills and valleys and mountains to be where God is, now God says, we're just going to flatten it all out, level it out, and make it as easy as possible for you. A simple, direct, unobstructed pathway to salvation. And not just salvation for the Jews. Note that all flesh will see the salvation of their God. All flesh. This is the universal invitation to salvation. And I want you to think about that when it comes to people you know who don't know Jesus. Because gang, it's not a mountainous climb to a Himalayan monastery. 
It's not a perilous path of pitfalls and, and mind games. It's not a crooked cult. It's not a rigorous religion. It is very simply turning around. Just turn around. Because the path is straight. And the path is, and I'll put it this way, for us, easy. Very hard for Jesus. It cost Him every drop of His blood. But for us, it is absolutely simple. The path to salvation. And so John's ministry was a ministry of repentance, of turning around, of just get on the path, dudes. It's going to be easy. You will see Him. You will know Him. And in knowing Him, you will find salvation. Verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now I gotta ask, what pastor starts a sermon like that? That is not very seeker friendly. What is John thinking? Can you imagine showing up here on a Sunday morning? We have our worship, we have communion, everything's great. And then I sit down and say, You family of snakes! What do you think you're doing showing up here on a Sunday morning? You think I'm going to give you the warning? If you haven't already heard it, what's the matter with you people? I love this about John. He didn't tickle ears, he ticked people off. John rejected the soft selling of salvation. John was a hard sell prophet. For John, eternity was serious business. It was turn or burn, repent or be damned. That was it. That's the deal. And John did not shy away from it. And I think far too many pastors today shy away from the message of the gospel and the reality of life without the gospel. We're talking salvation or damnation. Those are the choices. Pastor Rick, that's upsetting. I know! And that's why John shouted out, you brood of vipers. You're not going to come slithering in here and get salvation. This is serious. This is real life. It does not get more serious than this right here. And by the way, that's not judgment. That's love. John's words are the words of love. I know our world rejects that. But our world doesn't understand that love always warns. Love always gives the warning call. It does not stand by silently in the name of bland tolerance as people go barreling over a cliff. That's not love. Which is why, as I've shared before, the very first prophecy on record, the prophecy of Enoch that Jude records for us, is a prophecy of coming judgment. Why? Because God loves. And because it is not His desire for anyone to be lost, but for all to come to salvation through Jesus Christ. John was a powerful preacher of repentance. And and by the way, the ministry of repentance that John had didn't ask people to turn from a basically good life. I know you're basically all right. You just need a a few tweaks, a few minor changes. No, John's ministry of repentance was you need to turn from wretched sin. You need to turn from abject lostness. And again, that's something we don't talk about in, in the world today. And Christians shy away even from the thought that friends and family who don't know Jesus 
are wretchedly lost. John had no problem sharing that. He was a powerful preacher of repentance. He spoke the truth in love, as Paul says we are to do in Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects, into Him who is the head, even Christ. And speaking in the truth in love means that we will speak to those who need to hear the truth, even if it is upsetting for them. Think about this. Would you rather offend someone now? Or have them ask you later at the great throne judgment, why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you tell me this was what I had to face? Every day I worked with you in that office. Every holiday we shared family time together. Why didn't you tell me? John told him. Powerful preacher of repentance. And John was a weirdo. I'm telling you, think about this guy. Uh, Guzik puts it this way. He says, Any man who preached like this, lived in the desert, wore a camel's hair coat, and lived on grasshoppers and wild honey is just plain weird. (laughs) Jesus didn't have a slick advance man with a $1,000 suit and a $200 haircut. (laughs) Jesus uses weird people. Which gives me so much comfort. <laughs> Jesus uses weird people. First Peter two, chapter chapter two, verse nine in the King James says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You're a little off. You're strangely odd in this world. You're weird. I'm weird. Or maybe you're not. Let me ask you, are you willing to be weird for God? Are you willing to let your pride go in favor of whatever He asks you to do, no matter how strange, no matter how weird, no matter how invasive in other people's lives it may be, you're willing to do it. John was weird. Praise God for his weirdness. Verse 8. Therefore, John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children To Abraham. What's he talking about? It was widely taught and believed among the Jewish people of the day that no descendant of Abraham could be condemned. If you were in line from Abraham, you're fine. Your cup didn't really even matter if you went to temple. It didn't matter how much you offered sacrifice or if you kept the truth. As long as you're a Jew, as long as you are of the line of Abraham, you will not be condemned. And John begged to differ. John preached otherwise. John would say your heritage is never the source of your salvation. Let me repeat that. Your heritage is never the source of your salvation. Salvation only comes by one man, and that being Jesus Christ. It's not going to come from your upbringing. It's not going to come from your denominational tradition. It doesn't come from any other place. It comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. But John also makes it clear here that repentance is a visible thing. That repentance is something that is seen in the saved. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. If you say you're repenting, prove it. Live it. Let the fruit in your life be a portrayal, a picture of the repentance that you're coming out to be baptized for. Jesus would say in Luke chapter 6, verse 43, there's no good tree which produces bad fruit. Nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. And so, the life of the repentant 
that is the man or woman who has turned to God, will and must bear a different kind of fruit. We have said over and over, and I know I'm a broken record on this, but we should look different. We shouldn't look like the world. The fruit of our lives must be a different fruit. Proverbs 11 verse 30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. Verse 9. Indeed, John continues, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now you might think preaching like that would become, well, somewhat of a turnoff. Certainly was to the religious stuff shirts in Jerusalem. But the people loved it. The people were turned on by this. The people were passionate in listening to John, going out to see John. And why? Because they could say, here's a guy that doesn't shy away from just telling the truth. Even if it's uncomfortable, John's just preaching truth. And they flocked to it. Verse 10 says the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to collect. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Really? That's it? I mean, come on, John. Isn't there something a little more exciting that you can share? A little more, you know, heart-wrenching homily maybe that you can bring out here? He just says, live right, basically. It's a great sermon. What do we do in repentance? Live as you believe. Just do the right thing. I love this because there is no secret formula for being right with Jesus. There's no grand theological construct. There's no hidden message. There's no deep spiritual agenda. It's just simply live as you believe. Do you believe in Christ? Live like it. Do you love Jesus? Live that way. It'll affect your business affairs, tax collectors. It'll affect your treatment of people, soldiers. It'll affect how you deal with your neighbor, loaning a tunic. It's just simple life lessons. The prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Simple, easy. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul said, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And of course, James put a good cap on it when he said in James 2.14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James 2.18, Someone might say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What you do reveals what you believe. Where your feet go, Les likes to say. Watch where your feet go. That's going to tell you what you really believe. You can espouse all kinds of biblical truth, but if you don't live it, you don't believe it. You don't need a PhD, gang. You just need faith working out in life. 
So verse 15 says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, well, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. Now I said before, John's baptism was limited, both by time and in time and in effect. The baptism of Jesus was neither limited by time or effect. The baptism of Jesus, the baptism that Jesus would offer is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as we've talked about in here a few times, I think, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a phrase that came out of the Pentecostal movement of the early 1900s. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a phrase that Jesus coined. It's a phrase that John used. And so it is very biblical. He says the Holy Spirit is for the gathered wheat. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The fire, gang, the fire is for burning off the residual chaff. And that may be chaff in my life, even though I may be born again, that I am among the wheat to be gathered into His barn. If there's any chaff in me, He's going to purify it. He's going to burn it off. He's going to you know, throw it into the wind of the threshing floor. The Holy Spirit is for comfort and for strength. The fire is for purification and incineration. And they use a little symbol of fire oftentimes for charismatic events or charismatic movements or magazines or whatever, that little symbol of fire. I'd be careful with that. It's a nice logo, but it's a very serious thing. Because whether I'm being purified by fire, which is going to be hot and uncomfortable, or someone's being incinerated by fire, the fire is a tool of judgment. The Holy Spirit comes as the helper, as the comforter, as the one to encourage and strengthen, as the one who brings peace. And the one who is coming after John has the authority to administer both his spirit and the fire. And John is speaking of who? Okay, that's the obvious answer. Let me give you the one right behind it. John is speaking of God. Because only God has the authority to judge with fire. Only God has the authority to offer His Spirit. What are you saying, Rick? Jesus is God. And it is God who John was describing as coming after Him. By the way, rabbis in Jesus' day taught that a teacher could ask just about anything of His disciples except that they take off His sandals. It's kind of an unwritten rule of the rabbis. That's going just a little bit too far. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. Verse 18 going on, So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. You may know the story. We studied it in Matthew. Herod was having an adulterous affair. He had taken his brother's wife, Herodias, and was with her. And John calls him out on it. 
And so Herod does the only thing a ruler in that day could do. He throws John in prison. And for preaching the gospel truth, John got thrown into jail and eventually beheaded. Because he was willing to be weird for the Lord, he lost his head over it. I think maybe John's disappointed now. No, I don't think so. So that's the forerunner. Secondly, in our outline, we come to the fullness of deity. The fullness of deity. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while He was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are My beloved Son, and You I am well pleased. How do you open the heavens? You pray. You pray. Luke focuses more on prayer than any other Gospel writer. You will see him return to prayer again and again. He's the only one who adds that when Jesus was baptized, the Father spoke and the Spirit descended while He was praying. Luke's the only one to tell us that. Why is that so important to Luke? Why does he insert that into the story? Matthew doesn't. Mark doesn't have it. But Luke says it all happened as Jesus was praying. Why would Luke say that? I think perhaps a couple of reasons. First of all, prayer plugs us in to the power of Christ's Spirit. It's where the strength comes from. It's it's where we get our ability to persevere. It's where the joy comes from. We were over here praying earlier, and we're praying about some serious things and some healings that need to take place and and some protections for the church body. And, And as the prayer was continuing, all of a sudden, one of us, okay, it was Spencer, starts praying, and everything changed. Everything changed. Why? Because Spencer started praying powerfully. In essence, saying, Lord, give us the joy that we had when we first became believers. You know, return us to that moment. Give us the passion that we had when we first gave our lives to Jesus. And it was palpable. I'm not saying this to puff up my brother. It was palpable around the circles we were praying. Every one of us, I know I felt this way, started going, yeah, yeah, what he said. Yeah, I I want some of that, Lord. Because prayer connects us to that, to the strength that comes only by the Holy Spirit. And we wallow around even trying to come up with good biblical reasons for doing what we're doing or handling what we have to handle. And God just says, if you would pray, you plug in. When you pray, the power comes. And we see that on display throughout the book of Luke and throughout the, the Acts of the Apostles. Luke writing both volumes... We see prayer again and again and again. And we see powerful things happening in prayer. Luke talks about that. Acts chapter 4, the believers prayed, the Holy Spirit came, and the place where they were praying was shaken. Acts chapter 12, the believers are praying, and Peter's let out of prison and shows up. Powerful things happen when God's people pray. Because prayer plugs us into the work of the Holy Spirit Himself. But secondly, and I wonder if this is not even more of a reason that Luke was so interested in prayer. Prayer provides our most personal connection to Jesus. Now that is, that's very simple but so easily overlooked. And I want you to get this. As far as we know, Luke had never seen Jesus with the eyes of flesh. He came along afterwards. He's a convert of the Apostle Paul. 
perhaps in Damascus. Paul had that Damascus road experience where Paul saw the Lord. And I know that he told Luke about it. Luke wrote about it. Luke heard about it probably more than one time. It's possible that Paul shared with Luke his, his vision of the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul talks about a man who's caught up to the third heaven. I'm sure he must have talked to Luke about that. Paul saw Jesus. Paul had miraculous, amazing experiences. In seeing the Lord, Luke did not. Oh, Luke saw miracles. Don't get me wrong. Luke saw the power of the Holy Spirit at work. But understand this. Luke's connection to Jesus was in prayer. Same as yours. Same as mine. John 20, verse 29, Jesus says, Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. I have never seen Jesus with eyes of flesh. Never opened my eyes in the morning to see Jesus at the foot of my bed. Never walking down the street looked over and and there was Jesus. Never had a vision where Jesus in person came to me and showed Himself to me and I could describe Him to you. I've never had that. But I have had my most personal and intimate moments with Jesus when I pray. And I'll tell you all, when I come down here on Wednesday nights, I come down looking forward to that. When I open up in morning devotions before studying, I look forward to that. And it's not because God's going to give me some great insight into teaching. And it's not because I'm going to be filled with this power to get through the day. It's because I just get to talk to my Jesus. I get to commune with Him. And that's prayer. And that's the beauty of it. And I believe Luke just, man, he understood that. That prayer is intimacy. Luke knew Jesus with the eyes of the heart through that intimate personal fellowship that came only in prayer. And so we see Jesus here at His baptism and He is praying. And all three persons of the Godhead are present and accounted for in the same place, at the same time, the same moment... As Colossians 2 verse 8 tells us, in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Well, at His baptism we see the full picture of deity. The voice of God the Father speaking in the heavens. The Spirit descending in the form of a dove. And Jesus Himself praying there in the water. And I want you to understand that we can have this same thing. What Jesus shows us in His baptism is for you. And it is for me. In Jesus on earth. You can have the same as Jesus on earth. Do you understand that? In Jesus on earth now, you can have the same as Jesus had on earth then. What do you mean? In Jesus, I hear the Father say, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Because I walk in Jesus now, I am called the beloved. I'm a beloved Son. Mark, you're a beloved son. Isn't that great? Beloved sons and daughters, every one of us, called that by the Father when we are in Jesus. You remember the verse? Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's and His desire is toward me. Would you say that? I am my beloved's and His desire is toward me. And Jesus said in John 15, verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. How much did the Father love Jesus? 
is the question. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus says, I love you that much. As much as the Father. So in Jesus, on earth, I can hear the Father call me the beloved. In Jesus, on earth, I have the Spirit descend upon me. Just as the Spirit descended upon Jesus at His baptism. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And some might say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. That's a Pentecost promise. That was the promise that Jesus gave to the apostles gathered there that stay in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from upon high. It's coming. I want you to wait here. Okay, fair enough. We know roughly ten days later it happened. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. No question about that. But then what did Peter say? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he said, the promise is for you and your children. And, and I have this underlined in my Bible, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to Himself. That's me. And that's you. The Holy Spirit descending upon me. The Holy Spirit of the living God indwelling me in this life. As I am in Jesus, so His Spirit is in me. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. And there are so many examples in Acts, I've just given you two of them. Peter and the apostles say, We are witnesses of these things and the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. And by the way, Luke not, also, not only presents prayer more than any other Gospel writer, Luke talks about the Holy Spirit more than any other Gospel writer. Here in the Gospel according to Luke, also in the book of Acts, Luke saw firsthand how critical the Holy Spirit was in the early days of the first century. And so he talked about the Spirit a lot. He said the Spirit's there for the church to function in the fullness of God's power. So how vital to the church in the last days is the Holy Spirit? How important do you think God's Spirit is to us now if He was so important then that we, as Paul wrote, Ephesians 3.19, know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That means it's beyond Bible study. And you know I love Bible study. But we're talking about a knowledge of God that goes beyond the page. Something that is greater than And Paul says that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. At His baptism, the Father speaking, calling Him beloved, the Spirit descending upon Him, Jesus in prayer, the fullness of deity seen all in the same place at the same time. It's miraculous, it's remarkable, it's stupendous, it's stunning. And it's the same promise given to you. All the fullness of God. Luke is the only writer to record Jesus saying these words, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, and Luke adds, the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And I've had people over the years say, Ah, you talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit from time to time, makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't know, do you have like a voodoo session where you all gather together and and you do this thing? What is that all about? No, you ask. I'm a simple guy. I am simple when it comes to this whole issue. How do you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You ask the Lord. 
Baptize me with your Spirit. Immerse me with your Spirit. I want every ounce of your Spirit that you want to give me. I want to be immersed. I want to be overflowing. I just want to walk in the power of your Spirit. That's my desire. Ask Him. You really think God's going to say, "Uh uh-uh. No, I'm sorry. You're showing a little too much faith. (laughs) Ask Him. In Jesus' baptism, He prayed. And we see all of the fullness of deity happening. 